0: Hope Valley Line, written by Joe West. I suppose I should have known this wasn't going to end well when Ben called me up on the Friday morning to tell me he was pulling out. He'd been out on the Thursday night for a friend's birthday, I think it was. He was too hungover to make the trip. The model scout leader, I called him. As well as a few other things that were a bit more colourful. He apologised. Told me to make up for it as long as I stopped shouting and wished him all the best. One man, five kids, including my own, and a camping trip on a half weekend. Must have been mad. We meet at Sheffield Station, 8 o'clock on Friday morning. The parents swoon and coo over the kids, telling them to behave and not to wander off. The mum sound generally upset, about the kids temporarily find the nest. I said, as I just think about all the sex I'll be having this weekend with an empty house. I just stand there awkwardly and tell them Ben isn't here yet, paranoid that if they knew it was just me, they might pull out too. A lot of these parents are middle class and can afford to look like blown up versions of the kids, right down to their M&S seasonal jackets and hairstyles. Rosie's a round girl with plump cheeks that glow red in the cool morning breeze. This kid eats and eats a lot. In 10 minutes, we were waiting for the others. She had a banana, an apple, half a bag of raisins. At least it's all fruit, I suppose. I've learned from experience to see her the furthest away from the biscuit table during club nights. Georgie and Gina reminded me of twins from The Shining. It only be because their parents insisted on dressing them the same. Gun to my head. I couldn't tell them apart if they were both wearing hats. But thankfully, mum and dad had thought this one through. George has short hair. Gina has ears long, and if they wanted to swap, well, tough. Kyle was late as usual. Well, that's not fair. His dad was late. He ambles around the corner with the bus tickets in hand, and the stink of brandy practically steams off him in, in the morning air. Unlike his dad, Kyle is polite and genuinely happy to be there. I like Kyle. Kyle says hello to me and goes straight to Ryan. The two start. This sort of handshake that only ten-year-olds could understand. Ryan is mine. Caught somewhere in the middle of the social groups. Final waves and my eyes dart frantically back to my phone. Checking the time. And having a minor heart palpitation at the fact that we were only ten minutes to navigate through Sheffield interchange at rush hour. Head count. All here. Right guys. Let's get off. The kids start waddling inside and a bony hand lands on my shoulder. Ringing me back. Kyle's dad chews the air as his mouth clambers to my ear. I try not to imagine how many teeth he's missing. He doesn't have a sleeping bag. He nods his dusty forehead at Kyle. I tell him not to worry because I brought spares. He also, uh, he wets the bed. The kids get closer to being gobbled up by the riding bodies of commuters crisscrossing along the station, so I ramble out something about it being alright as I speed forward to herd them up. Well, as it turns out and not effective over short distances. With one hand, I vaguely wave the kids around and with the other I tap nervously at the train line app, refreshing the route to check the platform changes. Anxiety doesn't have a massive presence in my life, but when I got to make an important train, it enters the scene in top hats and Tails. The kids are all hyped up on Weetabix and poke and prod each other and meander over the walkway and across the platforms. They want to know who they'll be sharing with, how far the walk will be, why Ben isn't here. I tell them to wait until we're on the train. Scott needs to think for a minute. We pass rows and rows of modern trains, going to London and Edinburgh, and packing to ours destined for Hathersage. He's not filled with commuters at like the rest of the trains. This one is full to the brim with farmers, walkers and ramblers. They brush leaves off their boots, and the air dances above their flasks. I presume they're all retired, but despite spending all the time together, all people always have things to talk about. So of kids as it turns out. Mind gabble and giggle and talk about how big their leaf piles are gonna be or what they'd do if all the windows of the train popped off at once stand over them because there aren't any seats in here. And I rock gently back and forth. The creaking and bobbing of the train keeping me awake. If someone asks you to make the sound of a train, you'd probably do that classic choo choo shit that we all learned as kids. But trains don't sound like that. Not anymore, do they? They're hulking machines that rattle and shudder and click and clap. You can barely hear the wheels clicking along the tracks. Well, I'm not going to pretend that I know what trains used to sound like after both this train and what I heard in the woods. I can tell you they used to sound organic. too much It's unnerving. When you really think about it. Steam trains huff and breathe and really climb over every divot and turn in the track. They groan when they make turns, it's like they're alive. We disembark with about 20 pensioners, and I notice a banner across the station entry advertising for a ghost train every tea time during half term. The kids ask if we'll make it but I tell them we'll see. We amble down into the main village. This is a pocket of the countryside that time forgot. Little sweet shops and newsagents hug together on the high street, and the tea rooms are dusting themselves off, ready to greet the customers. The sun is just reaching us over the hills and bathing the village in an orange glow as if it's already sunset. Scarves, wellies, and fluffy jumpers are dawn coat racks outside the charity shops, and on every doorstep is a pumpkin. In every window a little skeleton or witch wishing you a happy halloween. You pass a village hall. and There's a hand painted sign. Advertising the great halloween ball. This is friday from 5 till 7. All welcome. Bring your sweets and watch out for spooks. The only franchised business is a Texaco petrol station. And even then I thought they'd died out in the 90s. I take out my phone. Double check the directions and the signal groans and whines under it's one bar. The campsite is a half a mile walk out the village, down a very well maintained public footpath. Everyone we see greets us as we walk past. It was that quiet, you might forget it was half turn. campsite is rammed with estate cars and Land Rovers trying to get to space. People just parking on grassy verges and in front of benches. There's a little ranger station off to the side, and I park my children on one free bench in the whole place as I go and check in. Inside there's a scrawny man balancing two phones under each folder, and taking notes in his free hand. He's sweating and mumbling agreements into each device. Excuse me pal, I ask. He gives me his index finger. One minute that finger says, can't you see I'm busy? Just stand awkwardly in the doorway whilst he finishes important business. He puts down both phones, sighing. What? He flaps. I tell him are a scout group. The person on the phone said they'd be expecting us. We've got a spot reserved. The kid freaks out and starts rifling through papers. His eyes are of someone's who's trying to pretend that he hasn't forgotten about us. A middle-aged woman steps rudely into the hut, ignoring me completely. And tells him the toilet's blocked and her daughter's been sick. The kid tries to apologise and she asks to see the manager. He tries telling her that the manager isn't here today, but he insists that he can fix it. And just like that, i am forgotten. The kid was obviously new, inexperienced, and not expecting it to be this busy. Besides, I've got my little walkie-talkie, and whoever I spoke to took note of the frequency. I slip out, and grin widely at the kids. Are we ready for an adventure? I ask. I'm the hero of the day. We venture off the beaten path and within five minutes we're a million miles away from the car park and the hustle and bustle and that idiot ranger. The trees cover us overhead in a thick blanket of leaves and trunks. The leaves will start to fall but the branches patch up the gaps that they leave behind. A few leaves fall on us as we walk and it's like being caught somewhere between rain and snow. My feet make that satisfying crunching sound as we pass through, logs burping and creaking as we step over them. There's no need for rules out here, no safe way of doing it. This is everything I love about camping, going where nature takes you. If the route dips down a bit around the pond over some roots then that's where we'll go. We're wilderness explorers, traversing the lost world looking for dinosaurs and aliens that landed nearby. Even I join in. When we get older, we lose that storytelling bone. But then and there, mine grew back in full force. We've probably been walking for about an hour before we made a clearing. I call for a break and Rosie collapses on a log, tucking into a tracker bar she's stealthily stashed in a coat pocket. Georgie lifts rocks and Gina places them for prime seating locations. Kyle looks for a stick to walk with. And Ranger just stares up at the endless trees. must this forest look like to them? It must seem endless. Beep. That man made, imitates sound, rips through nature and brings us back to reality. I'd forgotten I'd had it on me. He must be the kid, finally finding a quiet moment after the rush. Hello, I ask. Hello, oh, the little girl replies. I hold the radio away from my ear for a few seconds, like it'll help me think. Answer it, Scott, Kyle chimes in from behind me. It's probably just kids messing around. Please, Gina begs. They might need help, Georgia reaffirms. I sigh and I pull it back. Hello, who am I speaking to, please? My name's Madeline, the girl replies. She doesn't sound like any kid I'm used to hearing. Alright, Madeline. Nice to meet you. Are you on your parents' radio? No, she replies. I don't know where my parents are. I wasn't expecting that. I look away from the kids, not wanting them to distract me. Are you alright? No, I'm lost. Who are you? My name's Scott. I'm a scout leader. My parents left me here in the woods. Sounds like she's about to cry. Come find me. Oh, I don't know about that. Please, Scott. Please, come find me. Listen. Listen to me. It's going to be alright. Where are you? I'm in the woods. Well, listen. We're in the woods too. I bet you're not too far away at all. You've got to come in further, please. If you want to find me, you'll have to. I think it was the parental instinct that swayed me. I was already in look after the kids mode, but in that moment, I thought about Ryan being lost in the woods alone. I know what kids are like, and being a teacher, I know kids like to lie and get extra stuff. But she didn't break. She didn't sound like a naughty kid pushing a look. Most kids usually crack at an idea of an adult and mean to call them out. We were going a bit further in anyway, I suppose. Maybe not too much, but a bit more. I told her we were in a clearing. The big fallen log. And by some luck she knew it. Apparently she was there just an hour earlier. And she wasn't far away now. She told us to go south. And keep in a straight line. There'll be another clearing and that's where she'll be. And sure enough there she was. The clearing was bordered off with a hem of foxglove and brittle leaves, but the trees here grew wilder than the ones that we saw earlier. And these trees had a dense sages line running through them. Madeline was a small girl for her age. She so looked as white as a sheep, and she was wearing this old fashioned dress that her parents had probably thought was a shabby sheet. Her hair was bobbed, and she didn't have much on her no camping bits or even a coat. We weren't staying here, she explained. I got lost and ended up here. I don't remember where we were, she had this bag with her and it was full of old toys that she wanted to share with the others, a wooden toy car, two horses and something like a dragon head. The kids loved him, even the boys who tried to act like they were too old for him. I was surprised that the kids wanted to play with something that wasn't an iPad. Where's your radio Madeline? I asked after my mental stop take. I'm not sure if she heard me or not, she just looked into a gap in the hedge and pointed. There's a train track that runs through these woods. It's called the Hope Valley Line. No one uses it anymore, but it, it should lead us to my parents. They told me to always head back to the track if I ever got lost. Even if her parents had gone back to the Rangers well, this would make her feel better. There wasn't much of a pathway she pointed, and any that there might have been was overgrown and covered in nettles. But we went on it for long, and we soon made the train track. Nature started to reclaim the abandoned railroad. The branches towered overhead, and the leaves piled up against it, but not actually on it. The track itself looked like it had been barely used. Whichever way you looked at it, there was a grassy tunnel encumbered by leaves and trees. Madeline was trail leader now, picking a direction and taking us down it. By this point, my orientation had been thrown off, but I was sure this direction went further into the forest. The further we made it down the track, the wider the gaps in the group. Form George and Gina were walking hand in hand obviously. The boys are together. Madeline's talking with Rosie. They're all quite far behind me. But I start to hear giggling in the back of my ears. Then someone throws a rock at the back of my head. It was only small bit it hurt like hell. I whipped round my lightning fast. Hey! Who threw that? Look from eye to eye, expecting at least one guilty face or a pair of flushed cheeks, but there's no. Even Kyle who's usually a troublemaker, is notably silent. I give the moment a few seconds more to settle and turn back. they genuinely looking innocent, but nevertheless, once we start walking, I hear the giggle again. It gets dark, and against Madeline's gentle protest to keep moving, I take us to the side, But we set up camp in a clearing. The kids are ecstatic about sleeping unsupervised. Especially so they didn't stop giggling all night. I dream that I'm stood by the track. On a summer's afternoon. The trees are in full green. the birds chirp happily around me. I hear a train coming down the track. Clicking and clanking towards me. Up to my right. I see the kids waving at me from the window. Cheering and laughing. Practically screaming at the south. I look back straight ahead. I was excited to see them pass by. It's like they was calling to me, asking me to join in the (laughs) happening. Then they pass. And the train isn't how it was a second ago. The train is consuming in a blazing fire. Each carriage like a furnace billowing smoke over the next. Screams aren't happy. The dying ones. The kids are still hanging out of the windows, but the skin is burnt and peeling. Their faces, shells of what they're supposed to look like. Their hands are still waving, and they grab and clutch at me as they pass by, throwing cinders and flecks of flames at me as they pass at high speed. The carriages keep coming, more fire, more kids. I wake up bolt upright for a few seconds. My brain switches back on. I can still hear them screaming. But even though they were burning, the screams still sounded like laughing. I'm up before the kids in the morning. Not hard considering how little I slept. I stretch my legs, start a gentle fire and start making breakfast. The kids come out of the tents in dribs and drabs. Rains first, but it doesn't burst out. He's quiet, he doesn't look like he's slept much either. I try to engage him, but he isn't biting. He does this sometimes. And I always assume he's just deep in some profound thoughts, as deep as a nine-year-old's thoughts can be anyway. Then come Madeline and Rosie, giggling at some joke that Madeline just told that they refuse to share. Gina quietly joins the group, and almost miss her. Maybe her and Ryan have some contest going on, or in joke about who can go the longest without laughing. I don't know, kids do that, don't they. Carol's out of his in Ryan's tent, well past eight, and I joke, but with a hint of authority about his lying. Days are wasting. I cook off the sausages, and eggs and dish them out to the hungry mouths. Rosie's already eyeing up the seconds as I dish them out and do one of my routine headcounts, the first of the day. Ryan, Kyle, Big Rosie, Madeline, the new one. Gina, not Georgie. Or was it Georgie? No, Georgie was over there. No, she wasn't. I looked to my right, then left. Then stand up as if seen behind the kids would give me a vantage point. Uh, where's your sister, Gina? I ask. And Gina just stares distantly into the sausage bath she's nibbling at. I don't know, Gina whispers. She, she was here when I went to sleep, but when I woke up, she was gone. Maybe she's gone to the loo, Ryan chirps (laughs) in. Maybe she was eaten by a bear. I throw Kyle a dirty look for his unhelpful contribution. No, she'll be back by now. Rosie reasons, finishing off her breakfast in three bites. Girls don't take as long as boys. Are you sure she wasn't there, I ask, bending down to the twins' tent. Inside there's two sleeping bags, one for each twin. Only one is untidy and one is perfectly made. I'm sure, Gina nods. She didn't say anything about going. Or maybe a crazy clown will get her. Kyle rustles Ryan's arm, but it doesn't bite. My dad showed me a YouTube video of this man in a clown costume who chases you into the woods. That's really not helping. For the life of me, I can't think why one of the kids would wander off. Especially in the night. I think I know where she is. Madeline speaks softly for the first time. Last night, we were talking about my parents and she got really worried for me. I tried to tell her it was okay because we were with you. But she went off to try and find them. She did get really upset, Rosie nods. But why would she do that in the morning before I got up? Madeline shrugs. I asked Gina if that sounds like a sister and she agrees. Georgie did like to explore. She'd always be climbing up trees when they went for on walks with her parents. Carl calls her a monkey, and Ryan called him a prick. I knew teaching him that word had come in handy. So with only Madeline's word to go off, we pack up and rejoin the train track. Further down we travel, the influence that people had on this land shrinks feels like we're journeying into the centre of the earth. It doesn't feel as fun as and adventurous as it did yesterday. It feels wrong. That like we're somewhere where we shouldn't be. It feels like if it wasn't for this train track, we could easily forget the way home. But I couldn't remember seeing the track on the way in, so I couldn't have told you how to follow it back. It must just be well hidden with the overgrowth. We'd have to cross that bridge when we came to it. The wind rattles through the tunnel of the trees. And the walls of leaves feel thick and impenetrable. Now we're in the cellars of a castle. We walk in single file and I lead. Though throwing regular looks back to make sure no one else has wandered off. And how they get through the hedges anyway. The jokes come a little bit less naturally today, but the kids always find a way to make each other laugh and make light of tough situations. Not so much Madeline though. She jokes and tells Rosie all about her friends. And how much they'd like them if they ever met him. I a distant behaviour down to stress. At some point or another, every kid has a nightmare about losing their parents and she's living it. These parents must have camped pretty far down there. I think we've been walking for three hours. I then started thinking about my own nightmare last night. We tend to forget last night's dreams as the day grows on. But sure enough, thankfully, I'd mostly erased the picture of the burning train and the kids' faces from my memory. The noise stuck with me though. It felt like every time the wind bustled through the tunnel I carried the sound of a train with it. Only quietly. Quiet enough for me to think I was going mad, but it was there. I suppose Hard as we try. Nightmares take a bit longer to forget. Even the walking doesn't feel like it did yesterday. It doesn't feel like your legs are working and your chest is going. Probably because we're following a train track and there isn't much hills. But it feels like a march. Like we're trudging towards something... bad. Scott? Rosie calls from the back. Can we have a break? We've been walking for hours. I turn around and look at the group for the first time. I thought I felt rough after no sleep and this much walking. The kids look shot. They all had bags under their eyes and looked like they were flagging. Not Madeline, though. She was looking up at me with that familiar smirk. I know somewhere, Madeline grins. It's not far at all. Just around the bend. I look back ahead and show it off. The track bends to the left, about 30 yards. How would I not notice that before? We walk and there's another obvious feature I hadn't noticed before. A train station. Not a working one, though. It's abandoned. The nature has started to reclaim it. The windows are all buckled. The bricks are battered. And it looks like an oak tree has spouted out of one of the corners. But there's a charm to it in a weird way. All places always seem to have that air to them. The kids instantly spark up and make quick pace towards it. Did you find this with your parents? I asked Madeline. She replies, No, with my friends. It's only a small building with a ticket office, waiting room and a conductor's office, but a lot of this stuff looks so old it could be dangerous. The ticket office doesn't hold their attention for long, but I linger here, reading the posters and trying to put a date on this place. If I had to guess, I'd say it was 1940s. My suspicions are confirmed when I read a poster for the Halloween Express dated 1946 children only. It reads, can you survive a trip through the haunted forest? In any other context it'd be harmless but here it was genuinely unnerving. It didn't help that as I was reading it, as if on cue I started to hear that bloody train again. It started quiet at first, as it had before. Then it starts to get louder. Then my brain decides to couple it with the other noises from the nightmare. I start hearing the kids laughing and shouting and crying and in a weird way it sounded like they're saying my name. I look at the busted door on the platform. I'm drawn to that opening. I gently step out onto the platform and watch the leaves skip across the aged concrete, cracked and mossy with time. There's a picket fence that runs down the side of the track, and the paint is chipped and stripped back. I look to my right and I can see a train, out in the distance, coming towards me. The same excited feeling rising in my chest, being crushed by the same feeling of dread that I felt in the dream. A scream. A and we're pronouncing Gina stood in the open doorway. The other kids behind her, staring at the bench of the platform. There's a coat on the bench, but it's not mossy and ears like everything else, it's like new. It's George's coat. So Madeline leads us to the train station, she just happens to know us here. And George's coat's in here. Alright, Madeline, joke's over. The kids part, and Madeline stares at me innocently. Where is she? I don't know. This is a trick, isn't it? You two plan this to spook us. Georgie goes ahead and you lead us here and pretend I dunno. But what? George is missing and we're all a bit lost. This isn't the time to be scaring everyone. We're all scared enough as it is. Are we? Madeline flicks a challenging eye again. And I realise in that moment that I'm genuinely unnerved by this kid. I also think about how it looks to the others. For me to be ganging up on this newcomer like this. I step back, wipe like my face, trying to dig into the logic reserves of my brain. Carl steps between me and Madeline. She couldn't have gone far without a coat, Scott. Think about it. Kyle can't hold eye contact for long. But what little he gives him means business. He probably fancies Madeline a little bit. But she doesn't stop him. Just stands behind him and carries an eye me with those wide eyes. I have to drop it. Joke it up to coincidence. Maybe Georgie did just put a her coat here. Or someone got to her first. And took it from her. She'll turn up. We'll carry on a bit further today. If only to humour Madeline and genuinely try and find Georgie. But tomorrow we turn back. As useless as that ranger might be, we'll need him. And the whole mountain rescue soon. Gina and Rosie share a tent. The two boys and Madeline chumming together in the other. And that was the idea, anyway. Whether he felt like a third wheel or just because he disliked Madeline as much as I did, Ryan has to share with me. I don't blame him. We try and sleep, but after an hour, we're woken up and kept up by the sound of a party next door. Now I know for definite that it's just Rosie and Gina in that tent. It sounds like there's a dozen kids giggling and laughing in there. Silently, I the our tent and I can see their torches on, and there's about five different silhouettes in there. Well, they could actually fit in that tent. I gently step across, trying to avoid stepping on the leaves in between, and open their tent. I swing back the flaps, and it's just Gina and Rosie, sat upright looking at me. They ask me if I'm okay. Yeah, I, uh. Was there anyone else in here? Well, Madeline was shown as a friend, Rosie explains quietly. I stum over to the other tent and unzip it. Madeline is sat upright, staring at me as if she was expecting me. What are you doing? Nothing. The girls in the other tent say you were showing them something. I've been sat here all night. She gives a subtle shrug. I go and see the sleeping bag and realise for the first time that it's empty. Where's Kyle? I Eyes darting around the tent as if he's hiding somewhere. Madeline just sighs. You went with Rosie. I didn't sleep much after that. I've considered going out looking for Kyle, but then remembering how dark it is, even with a torch, it wouldn't be much good. Besides, he a fairly high maintenance kid that needs constant attention. If he took himself off for a walk, he'd give up after a bit and come back. Probably deny it all in the morning anyway. When I do sleep, it's as bad as the night before. I'm on the train platform and it's still covered in autumn leaves, but it's in its heyday. Shearing music sounds and the sky is amber and orange. Settling the stark sunset over the platform. I don't bustle and joke around me, but no one takes any real notice. There's the noise again. I look as before, to my right, and the train is pulling up again. I feel excited. A little dread, but mostly excited because it's actually here. In seconds, it's pulling up at the station, adorned on the inside with cobwebs and pumpkins, and painted sign on the seat that reads Halloween Express. On my left, a line of children appear, led made by Madeline. They're all dressed in smart school uniforms, look like evacuees, they laugh and joke and point at the train. Their eyes wide with excitement that they can't contain, their happiness is bursting from them, and they start screaming. The adults do nothing to calm them down. The last child appears, it's Ryan. Joking and grinning widely with the rest of them. The adults are gone. The sky is red and angry. The shadow is touching everything. From the train to the bench. The train groans and creaks angrily. Restlessly. Like it can't wait to swallow up these kids. The kids are all stood in a straight line now, facing forward. Arms by their sides. They're all looking away from me, silently. Any excitement is drained from Only the back Child, Ryan, looks at me. The doors to the train open and the smoke hisses and escapes from it. Don't look at them, Ryan says. You don't want to see to go back to sleep. I just laid there until 6. Listening to Ryan breathing and reassuring myself that he's okay. The train noises are just in my head. There's an atmosphere around the fire this morning. It's not a good one. The kids ask about Kyle, but I tell them he stormed off in the night after I told him to be quiet. He's probably knocking about nearby. I even joke that he won't be long once he smells breakfast cooking. Madeline keeps quiet and allows me to open and lie to them, which I'm grateful for. The last thing I need is her interjecting cleverly. I seem to accept this, but they're not stupid. I keep looking around, trying to believe the lie myself. It doesn't work. Madeline also doesn't protest when I take the kids back where we came. Not obviously, I've, I don't need the kids asking any more questions. I take it in a wide semicircle for about half an hour and then veer back in the direction I think the car park is. But at this point, I honestly don't know. To really throw the scent I keep us as far away from the train track as I can, so it's not as obvious. And in turn the sound gets quieter. It gives me time to think. After a couple of hours, we hit the cliffside, side, overlooking a little brook. It's got a babbling stream escaping through the cracks in the rocks, and growing in a few small puddles before gathering a full-sized pond. A little slice of paradise in the middle of an unwelcoming forest and I feel a little revived to see the trees have been cut back a little more here. Of course, Rosie and Gina beg to go for a swim, and though my mind reminds me that it's October and it's not swimming weather, the water is running and I'll let them dive in. This is meant to be a fun trip after all, and they are still kids. Ryan joins in, which is good to see, and although she doesn't get in the water, Madeline dangles her feet and splashes the others, It's weird seeing her act, well, like, a kid. I perch myself on a nearby rock and lose myself in the serenity for about 10 minutes, listening to the kids laughing and having fun and being reminded as to why we came here for this trip in the first place. Look, some kids have already been here, Rosie shouts, pointing at something. Ryan delicately strides over to the side of the water and pulls something that I don't see at first. He turns. He's holding a coat. Isn't that Kyle's coat? you Gina asks looking back at me. Ryan instinctively passes the coat to me and I take it, not really knowing what to do with it, I tell him to carry on playing. I move down the stream and into the patch of the forest, just away from the water, shouting for Kyle, screaming for him. I drop the wet coat onto a log, flap my arms, feeling frustrated and utterly useless. I shout again. The leaves and brushes around me rattle and shiver in the breeze. It feels like I'm trapped in a hurricane. The wind swirling and taking up anything in its path. There's a rustle in the bushes. I'm sure it's more than wind. Kyle? I call. The bush rustles again. It's almost like someone's about to come out. My phone. I've been so used to having no signal I forgot to check it. I answer it. It's Ben. Alright mate, how's everything going? He asks. I have to take a few moments to gather myself. Well, uh, not great. It's not that bad, is it? I tell him everything. About Madeline. The missing kids, my dreams. I only skimmed past those though because I couldn't bring myself to recount them. He's overwhelmed, wants to call the police. I tell him the park ranger doesn't even know about them. There's still every chance that they could be waiting for us at the station safe and sound. Shit, man, I didn't think. It makes sense though. Does it? With the trains, I mean. I was planning on telling you a story about it when we got there. Like, I wanted it to be a surprise. A scary story, like for Halloween. Ben was the one who picked the forest, hardly because of its colourful history. He was the one who did all the research and, as he explained, once he'd read about what happened here, well, we couldn't not go. Before the Second World War, this was set to be a massive development that would connect one side of the peak district to the other. The whole village was on it, helping develop this track and even building a little station, if only for the walkers and campers. But then the war happened, the railway was postponed. After the war, the track reopened was part of making Britain great again. It was completed in time for Halloween. As a treat for the kids, there was a child-only ride on Halloween. The Halloween Express. According to the itinerary, it was meant to be a spooky round trip. No longer than 20 minutes. On a loop of the forest. It was advertised to one of the bravest of children. And it was set off at sunset. there would be sweets. A volunteer telling some ghost stories. And during the grand finale, the lights would turn off and someone would run down the train in a costume. But it all went horribly wrong, and no one really knows why. Online, there were rumours that a vengeful employee who was made redundant before the war hijacked the carriage. Railroad historians just put it down to negligence. Whatever happened, the train set off from Havisage and arrived in the next town completely on fire. Reports said that the kids were hanging out of the carriage screaming for help, but no one could go near. The track had a short history afterwards, mainly being used for forest workers, but it was shut down 10 years later due to lack of business. Around October, rail workers reported seeing children running around the tracks who weren't really there, and many left the job under psychological stress. I was quiet for a long time after he told me. I thought about my dreams. About the giggling I heard in the girls tent, and the uneasy feeling we all had the further we went into the forest. Then I thought about Madeline, and how we just stumbled across her in the clearing. About how we'd been travelling for nearly two days and not seen eye or ear of her parents. I thought about Georgie and Kyle. What was it the girl said last night? Madeline was showing us her friends. You haven't seen anything, have you? Ben asks. Dad? Ryan stood there shivering in his coat. I dropped my phone and run to him, covering my mind, trying to rub some heat back into him. His teeth are chattering and he's crying. tried, Dad, but they wouldn't listen. Ryan explained that Madeline was asking Gina and Rosie if her friends could join them. Ryan didn't think it was a good idea and wanted to wait till I was back, but they didn't listen to him. He left them for a bit and went diving by himself into deeper water. He apologised for going into the deep end when I told him not to. When he was under, he tried to see what he could underwater. He couldn't see much on the ground. He looked upwards back towards the girls, but through the water he said he could see a group of kids, probably ten or so, all standing around the water. When he came up, they were gone. Gina, Rosie, Madeline, and anyone else who was there. He was in shock, and I tried to calm him down, standing there for about ten minutes, getting the colour back in him. I tape back my phone, the signal's dropped, and of course, and we make our way back to the water. Sure enough, just as Ryan said, they were gone. sat off Ryan for the whole trek back and though we kept a steady pace when it got dark we were nowhere near the ranger station forced to make a camp I made sure we were in an open space with clear paths stemming from it. We ate in silence around a small fire and I kept Ryan next to me as we slept. My dreams weren't as horrifying as they'd been the two nights before not at first anyway. I was inside the carriage tonight and the dying sunlight was blinding. Despite being Halloween night the carriage was warmed by the sun and rammed with giddy children. The same ones that I'd seen last night. Ryan sat next to me. Still in the school uniform. We rocked gently with the rest of them. The kids sat mostly in pairs, but there was this one girl in front of me on a bench to herself. She turned to us as I realised it's Madeline. Her face filled with actual colour. Let him play with us, Scott, she smiles. Oh, please, won't you let him play? Before I can answer, she's engulfed with the rest of the carriage in a ball of fire and I wake up. Dad. Ryan is shaking me. Dad, please wake up. My eyes take a few seconds to adjust to the dim light. I'm in the silhouette of Ryan's torch. I can see figures moving around outside, quick and small. Madeline's outside. Ryan gulps. She's outside, shouting for me. She wants me. Without a second thought, I unzip the tent and scramble out, ready to face whatever's out there. In those few seconds, I remind myself that whatever it is out there has never shown itself. It always hides at the last second or scurries away. Sure enough as I emerge with the torch there's nothing. The bushes rustle and shake even though there's no wind, and I can hear them giggling again and the gentle rhythm of the damned train but there's nothing. With no one in our way, I scoop up Ryan and make for the ranger station. I run faster than I ever have before, darting over tree stumps and making logs in great strides. The forest is alive with the children, I see them running alongside me. Darting and dashing in between the trees. I don't know if they think I can't see them or if they're teasing me. They're laughing and shouting at me as I am through. They're asking for Ryan. They tell me they have the others. I hear Madeline's voice the loudest. She's telling me there's no point running. I hug Ryan closer to me and just keep running, determined that if I keep it straight and down that I'll see home again. Every time I doubt myself, I hug him tighter, and by the end I'm squishing into him. To me. The train is all around me, it's chugging and screeching and billowing smoke that's dancing through the trees above me, getting into my throat, slowing me down. And then we emerge from the trees into the car park, in the same place we started two days ago. The nervous park ranger stood there with his torch, which just shines on me and Ryan. Benny stood next to him, looking freezing and sweating at the same time. Behind them, Rosie, Georgie, Gina and Kyle. The huddle together in shop blankets. The mountain rescue team. Police. An ambulance. They're all here. The ranger's mouth drops as he sees us emerging from the tree line. I collapse on the ground. And all the noises disappear from my head. A white noise cleanses from my ears of the giggling, the children, and the train. Ben's the first one to reach us. I think Ben tries to pull Ryan right away to check if he's alright. I'll entire. Both of us crying. Just a bit longer, I think. Just let us have a bit longer. After that, I blacked out, but I didn't mind. I let the arms take my weight, carry me to safety. I think even let go of Ryan after a while. The last things I heard were silence.